Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Whether these places are cities, fictional locations, street corners, public squares, or barely noticed nooks and crannies, we will bring you weekly stories, features, and interviews, all striving to let you feel the texture of these places. Today I am joined by Chris Olson, and we will have a conversation about Seattle, our city. We will likely chat about what is unique about this place, how it has changed over the years, and about the direction it is currently taking. Chris is a Seattle native who works as a digital technology consultant. But more importantly, he has been involved in Seattle's music community, creating spaces and events, showcasing local musicians while supporting multiple causes. Chris, many thanks for joining me today. Welcome. Thank you, Eric. I'm excited to be here. This is an honor. Thanks, and I know we've talked about it a bit, and, and I'm glad to have you here finally. So let's kick it off and, and tell us a little bit about your relationship to Seattle. How long have you lived here? What drew you to Seattle? I don't think I really had a choice. I was born here, and so uh, I would say Seattle is definitely in my blood. My family also has deep roots here as well. I left for a while and was raised in eastern Washington and then moved to London and lived in Norway and a few other places and then moved back in 1993. So I've been back in Seattle consistently since 1993. So gosh, that's 26 years now. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's rare. A lot the, the running joke in Seattle is that most people are not from here. And when people are asked, where are you from? It's either California, Oregon, or some external state. So in a way, you are one of the rare ones. One of the rare ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've gotten to the point in my life where it's getting harder and harder to leave. I keep thinking about places to go and places to live and, you know, exploring that in my mind. And <laughs> I turn it over and drive down, you know, on a sunny day and see Mount Rainier. And I think, oh, gosh, could I leave that? I don't know. Um, as much as the city changes and moves, it still has heartstring tugs in my heart. Yeah. And what about the days when Mount Rainier is not visible and it's slate gray and misty? I actually enjoy that weather. I travel a lot. So, you know, I think coming back on those days, you know, you kind of soak it in and enjoy it. And, um, you know, maybe it's a change from being somewhere warm or, you know, tropical and you come back and you kind of breathe a sigh of relief and you inhale the clean, wet air and, uh, you know, enjoy those days. Mm -hmm. It's a variation important. Is there a unique vibe or cultural character to this place that you think would be fair to identify? Do people share certain characteristics? Is there a a unique Seattle and or Pacific Northwest cultural way of being? I think there used to be. I don't think there is anymore. I would say the common Northwest experience is the natural experience. You know, whether you're in Oregon or Washington or British Columbia, the immediacy of the natural world and its visual presence and then just closeness, water, mountains, wildlife, all of that is just the physical presence. I think particularly in Seattle, the cultural way of being has shifted as the city's grown. When I lived here, um, I was born here in 1969 and I grew up here in the 70s, and we moved um, in the mid-70s to eastern Washington. When I was young here, this was a working-class town. Nordic, working-class, a port city, very much not what we see today. Um, you know, driving down First Avenue on the bus with my mom going from Queen Anne to Pike Place Market. It was all strip clubs and uh, peep shows and, mm -hmm. you know, sailors on leave and <laughs> shipyard workers. You know, it was a very different city. It was also very Nordic. You know, I think there was just a homogenous vibe to the city. And, you know, 
There's pockets of that now, um, but very much less so. And what is it about that Nordic character? What are the characteristics of the Nordic character that, that have seeped into Seattle if, and remain? They probably remain in that neighborhood, Ballard, yeah. which is the epicenter of, of that community. You know, I think it's really a hard work ethic, modesty, and uh, very much some progressive political values. And when I was growing up, that applied to, you know, left and right. Republicans and Democrats both had progressive sensibilities. In fact, probably earlier on in the city's history, Republicans had as progressive, if not more so than, you know, many Democrats in certain eras, certainly coming from a sense of Scandinavian cultural heritage. The hard work ethic and just, you know, making do with what you had, uh, it's kind of a frontier mentality. I think that that, you know, really permeated for a long time. And also, um, you know, allowed some of the early corporate pioneers like Boeing, um, you know, that just build something from the ground up, make it great and work hard at it. Definitely was out of that ethic. And then the modesty, um, and maybe modesty to a certain extent still at certain levels pervades the city. It was just never a showy city. If you look around at the civic architecture and the residential architecture in Seattle, even people who had a lot of money in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s did not build some of the things that you would see in other cities. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I work for a digital marketing agency, and and one of the research tools I have tries to find trends and values on in regions. And one of the major values and trends that they identify in the Pacific Northwest, and specifically Seattle, is what they call non-showy luxury. And I often think that, that there's some ring of truth. Another thing about the Nordic sensibility I want to go back to, what about the the psychological state is there a psychological layer that is associated with the nordic community and let me let me expand what i mean often when people come to seattle one of the first things they bump into is the so-called seattle freeze whether you agree or not with that phrase um, there's a perception that when you get close to somebody they will be friendly they will be cordial with you they will open up maybe for five to 10 minutes, but when you start pressing and trying to become a, a closer friend or extend it over a period of time, suddenly uh, people close up and that it becomes very difficult to maintain longer term relationships with people. It really takes a while to take hold. And when I think of that and I think about my experiences in Scandinavian countries, there's a certain aloofness, which I actually appreciate, mm -hmm. which I see also in Seattle. Do you think that's a fair representation or a cultural stereotype? I don't know that the Seattle freeze specifically is Scandinavian. I'm skeptical about that, frankly. You know, when I've been in Norway and visiting relatives and there, yes, there is some aloofness and cultural standoffishness, I guess would be the term, but it's not a freeze and people are certainly generous and warm and welcoming. I think the Seattle freeze maybe is compounding that natural reticence, Scandinavian reticence with waves of newcomers that have come in over time. And um, it's just kind of compounded in this region. I think people are skeptical about people who move here. Are you really going to last like a winter here? Not that it's cold and miserable, but it's gray and wet. And, you know, lots of people are like, I need to get back to Southern California. I've mm -hmm. been here two years. This is, you know, not for me. And so I think that natural reticence combined with waves of migration is kind of compounded something unique here. But I don't think it's typically Scandinavian. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that. I think it's more regional and just based on kind of the the history of this place. Yeah, and I do want to talk about the influx of new residents in, in a second, but I I do want to explore the fact that you are not really a rarity, but a 
somebody difficult to find, which is somebody who has been here for probably over three decades, if not four, in one mm -hmm. way or another. And you mentioned some memories of what First Avenue used to be like. If you can dig into your mind and think of memories of Seattle in the past that really stick with you, that often burst into your consciousness, what are some of those memories that really are part of the fabric of, of why you think Seattle is great? Well, you know, I was pretty young when we moved uh, to Eastern Washington. So I have some specific young childhood memories of, um, you know, like swimming at the YMCA with my mom, the bubble later at the World's Fair, which is gone, but it was a, a legacy of Century 21 at the Armory, I believe, and they had where the food court is now. They had this, it just went two stories, but it was the coolest thing when you were a kid. It was a bubble elevator. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... um you know, going to uh, Pike Place Market, I remember that vividly with my mom. We did, you know, shopping there. That was definitely, you know, taking the bus downtown. We lived on Queen Anne doing, uh, you know, weekly shopping at the market. Um, you know, those are strong, strong childhood memories for me. Yeah, I wonder if people still shop at the market other than, than tourists. There's been, a, speaking of new construction and new influx, there's been a lot of new residential towers that are building there and there are no or very little supermarkets downtown. So I wonder if Pike Place Market becomes the uh, supermarket for these folks. I still shop there. Oh, there you go. I do. You know, and at this time of year, it's a real pain in the ass, to be frank. You have to like navigate a bunch of tourists and, you know, sometimes it's difficult. But those people that are at the market, it's not just for show. They're not just throwing fish. In fact, I kind of avoid the fish throwing place. But you walk a couple stalls down and it really is like the best, freshest produce and the best fish in Seattle. And shopping there is a treat. It's a, you know, it's a real cultural landmark in the city. I think one of our mayors, I think it was Wes Ullman in the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s was a visionary to save that place. And um, it's a problem that we now have is that we have city leadership who are very cozy with developers. And I'm not sure that that would have been saved today. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they're expanding it now. There's an expansion growing um, behind it facing the, the viaduct toward Elliott Bay. That's going to be, the viaduct is going to be brought down, but it looks like they're extending Pike Place Market. I don't know if it'll conserve its character or not, or what will become of it. I, we shall see. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the market itself now is such a uh, landmark and such a treasure in the city that that will remain. Adding on to it, um, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a natural progression of the way things are going to be. But what I'm really saying is that if the market was today and the climate that we have today, if it was at risk or at jeopardy and there were developers who wanted to build on it today, if the situation that was that had happened in the late sixties initially had happened, I think we'd probably be at risk of having it gone. Mm -hmm. Speaking of how has the city changed over the years? And you can think of time horizons, 10 years, 20 years, or even 30 years, given your, your history in the city. What what are some of those characteristics that really strike you as, my God, this has been a tremendous change from from the city I knew? You know, I I don't want to sound like an old fart. I don't want to sound like someone who's negative about development or change. I mean, we are blessed to live in a city with a vibrant economy and a growing and changing and dynamic economy with tons of opportunity. So that part of our city is amazing. I just think that there is lip service to maintaining a sense of community in the city, but there's an unwillingness to actually do anything about it. There's no vision for how to preserve character while 
um, also enabling and, and maintaining growth. And so, for example, live music in the city, you know, that is a value that leadership in the city has said is, you know, something that we want to be known for and we want to be known as this great city. And yet, time after time, venues, um, you know, are torn down for new development, tenants in different, um, you know, venues, you know, art spaces, galleries, um, music venues are pushed out because they can't afford to be there. And there's no forethought or um, thinking that those are kind of the cultural landmarks or the pieces of a city that are, um, that make it what it is and what draws people to that place in the first place. It's not shoebox condos with uh, Starbucks coffee at the street level. You know, that's just not the character that's going to bring people to the city. And if that's what ends up, that is all that's left of Seattle, then we've really, you know, lost kind of the essential character of the city. Yeah. I think uh, listeners that follow this podcast know that I've been uh, railing lately about South Lake Union and development. And I live near that neighborhood. And a lot of design review boards before construction happened brought all the residents together to show these great new plans. And the plans show these shiny, great corporate buildings. But don't worry, there will be public plazas, there will be retail life, there will be all these spaces, as they like to say, that will be activated by the public plazas and the retail life. So when you're looking at these diagrams and these paintings, watercolor paintings of what the future will be, it looks very nice. People floating through open spaces, plazas, and a sense of community with corporate life buzzing above them. Now that it's constructed, it's very different. It's a open plaza, cement spaces, cement seats, restaurants and cafes that are either chains or encrusted within the corporate buildings. So basically what it gives the impression of is people work in their buildings and when it's time to relax, they will move down six floors, have their beers, have their drinks in the same corporate environment that they're in, which keeps them close. And then when it comes to late at night, after hours, these spaces empty and tumbleweed rolls by. So there is talk, as you say, about creating these public spaces, activating it. <clears throat> but it's often, as you say, not arts and cultural venues. It's more about what additional Starbucks can we put in this place? How, how many benches can we put in here so people can sit and eat their, their sandwich in the middle of a lunch hour? So it, it's very difficult to, to change perception to say that, that activation does not just mean another corporate food or drink place crusted in there. Well, activation um, is a mix of many different things. And I think, you know, when I moved back to Seattle in the early 90s, it was um, getting global attention. I moved back specifically from London to Seattle because I was like, I am missing a moment. When, you know, you're watching Top of the Pops and Nirvana comes on and you're like, they played at my college. What the hell? <laughs> I need to get home. I moved home for that. And the the vibrancy in that early 90s period was really the nexus between the ability to have cheap rents and living and uh, working spaces for artists and musicians and a tight-knit community that had been kind of isolated for a while and then had kind of blossomed and gotten some national attention on its own. You know, the ability to just thrive in in, uh, in an urban environment. Now, I don't think that any of that is possible. Not even just artists, but you know, people like Linda Dershang, who started um, a clothing store, a tiny clothing store on Broadway, and then now has an empire based on you know, retail and beautiful like restaurant experiences, started with Linda's Tavern. 
all of that was done in neighborhoods that I don't know what they pay for rent, what they paid for rent in the '90s, but it could not have been that much. So I just have this fear now that the entrepreneurship and the artistic entrepreneurship that was able to thrive in you know the '80s and '90s in the city, there's not space for that anymore because people are priced out. And how do you start something like that if you don't have millions of dollars of backing? If you look around at the spaces you're talking about that are open and available, they have you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in build-out costs to make these very fancy, elegant spaces. And I don't go to South Lake Union. I live on Capitol Hill. But, you know, sure, I'd, I'd love to go to a brand-new restaurant down the street and have a gorgeous steak and beautiful bottle of wine, and it's a great experience. But the dive bar that was around the corner that was really fun and the bands used to play at is gone. Mm-hmm. You know, that that also was part of that neighborhood, which made it interesting and, and vibrant. And that those spaces just don't exist anymore. It feels very closed out from anything that is grassroots, ad hoc, kind of organic, and very much what chain, what boutique, what brand, what you know, restaurant with you know lots of financial backing is going to come in and, and fill up this ground level retail space. And what can we do to change it? I mean, you do a lot. You basically generate these events throughout the year, uh, fundraisers for Laos. Uh, musical events where local artists can play. Tell us a little bit actually about that before we go on about your activation of the community. Well, I haven't done that in a long time. I I did an event for my birthday uh, just as a Planned Parenthood fundraiser, and it turned out to be great because it was um, a few days after our last election. So it was kind of an, an event where people could come together and like go a little crazy. Mm-hmm. Cathartic. Cathartic, in yeah, a, in a great way. way. Yeah. I don't do it anymore as much because the spaces where that can thrive are gone. You know, being able to do something inexpensively and um, bring friends together, you know, it's it's kind of gone. The other thing, too, is I'm talking as someone who's 47. So I'm not going out every night like I was in my 20s and 30s. I'm not as connected with music. I'm sure that there are house parties and things that are happening that I have no idea about in this town. And I'm sure that that's shifted. I do know people who consistently book live music, though, and it's harder and harder to get people to come out and see local acts or acts that are mm-hmm. kind of coming up. That what do you aren't. think that is? I think it's a broader cultural phenomenon. I think it's beyond Seattle. It's, you know, I think it's national. I think people are plugged in in ways that they have never been before. And there's so much media across the board that's available for consumption that getting people to focus on a specific channel or event is really difficult. Yeah, that's an interesting point. In a podcast I recorded, I discuss music scenes, such as if you think Berlin in the mid-70s with Bowie, Iggy Pop, Kraftwerk, New. I talk about Athens, Georgia in the late 70s and early 80s, where we have bands like Pylon, of course, R.E.M., B-52s, etc. And I was going through that discussion. It struck me that I couldn't think of music scenes that have evolved in the 21st century at that level of intensity. Of course, Seattle in the 90s is another prime example. I thought about Bristol, England in the mid-90s with so-called trip-hop. Mm-hmm. I thought about Detroit techno. But when I started racking my brain about the 21st century, it, it became barren. And I don't know if that's a function of my age and not going out as much and not as being as plugged in. But it also occurred to me with the internet and digital communication, the ability to have music scenes becomes... a it becomes less important to have, in a sense, a geographic center of gravity. You can just distribute and have your communication across Reddit, YouTube, what have you. And the whole notion of a, of a local community maybe starts to dissipate. 
maybe now I'm the old fart. Maybe there are, there is stuff happening. I, I heard something's <laughs> happening in Nashville, for instance. I think it's less scene specific. An example of that is um, Calvin Harris, who's a huge electronic music superstar, started on MySpace. Gosh, that must have been 2007, 2008. When did MySpace kind of peter out about 2007? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I emailed him on MySpace several times. He got right back to me. We were talking, you know, if you ever come to Seattle, let's do something. All of a sudden, he's this, uh, you know, big presence. And how did that happen? Well, it's all just by connecting you know, online. And he was doing that in his bedroom in Scotland, some tiny town in Scotland, you know, so it's not like he needed the scene and other supporting musicians. Uh, He just kind of created his own and did that. And I think a lot more that's happening. The music tribes are less uh, geographic specific and more different pockets of the internet, I suppose, at this Mm -hmm. point. Well, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Often when you read guidebooks and when you talk to people, and many cities are this way. The claim is that Seattle is a city of distinct neighborhoods with distinct character. So we have Capitol Hill, which is, you know, epicenter or used to be of a, a funkier so-called alternative culture. We have Ballard, which has Norwegian, Swedish presence and a strong fisherman culture. Um, how have Seattle neighborhoods changed over time? And I'll pick two or three that you find are distinctive neighborhoods in Seattle, what are, describe their character a bit and how that's cracking or shifting over time and evolving? Yeah, well, I think we could really start with Ballard, which to me is absolutely shocking now. When I first moved to Seattle, it was a fishing village. Originally had not even been part of Seattle. It was its own separate city. And eventually over time in the early 1900s, it became part of the city of Seattle. But it was settled by you know Nordic settlers And when you went there in the 90s, the early 90s, when I first moved back to Seattle, it was pretty rough and tumble. And there were, you know, dock workers and fishermen and old, old, old (laughs) Scandinavian people Mm -hmm. that lived in Ballard, working class, really had been part of that neighborhood for a long time. And there were a few um, kind of intrepid early pioneers in that neighborhood, some friends of mine that opened the Sunset Tavern and others that um, bought and kind of refurbished Taddy's Hat that started to make it a kind of a a cultural marker place where younger people came. And now I go there and that whole main strip is um, beautiful shopping and fabulous restaurants and all sorts of things that, uh, you know, I think 20 years ago would have been shocking to have a sushi restaurant or you know, a a very high-end homeware store on that street. It's a beautiful street. Architecturally, it's one of the most significant and unique streets in Seattle. I think with a few exceptions, they've done a good job of preserving that actual character and not impacting with a bunch of high-rise condos right at that, the Ballard Avenue. I think Market Avenue Mm -hmm. at the north end of that is changing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's bittersweet. You know, you go and you're like, great, I'm glad they preserve this character and that it's vibrant and that there's a lot of people here. But the unique and interesting part of the history of that neighborhood is is lost. And the um, Scandinavian stuff there now is just a pastiche. It's, mm-hmm. it's an homage. There is, you know, the Norwegian Independence Day Parade that happens every May 17th. And it is a big community event. Um, but I went that's, to the Ballard Seafood Festival I think for the first time since I've been here, I've been here 10 years and it struck me, it's not particularly uh, Nordic, Norwegian or Swedish. There's a lot of fried okra and fries and yeah, cheese steaks. It's just the regular 
street just, fair with a little lutefisk hidden somewhere. Hidden somewhere, yeah. yeah. Maybe you'd want to find it, maybe you don't. <laughs> maybe you don't. <laughs> How about uh, other neighborhoods other than Ballard that strike you as having that tremendous shift? I think South Lake Union is another um, neighborhood uh, like that. And again, that was auto dealerships, repair auto repair shops, very industrial. And there's some edges on Lake Union that are still like ship repair. And you see kind of that industrial character of the neighborhood still. Huge missed opportunity with that neighborhood in the late 90s. Um, and the possibility of having a park built, which just makes me heart sick to think that we could have had this beautiful, you know, central mm-hmm. park. Proposed uh, by Paul Allen of Microsoft fame was, was going to be called the Commons or something like that. Connected the uh, south end of Lake Union all the way to downtown. Basically, multiple city blocks. And um, for whatever reason, it, it did not succeed. I think, again, part of just a lack of vision and our unique political process in this city. And it now is corporate headquarters and um, for Amazon, for Amazon. Yep. And um, you know, many others. And I don't frequent that neighborhood very much anymore, given that the attractions for me aren't there. And, but I do have been uh, a couple times and just been down at lunchtime or been at, and I'm just amazed at the amount of people and the traffic at the restaurants. It's interesting to hear you say that at night, that is kind of, non-existent. Mm-hmm. So the promise of that neighborhood maybe is still to come. There needs to be some other connecting pieces that yeah. uh, help make it more holistic. It, it really does feel like a suburban corporate park that has encrusted eateries associated with it that just got grafted out of Bothell, if you will, and dropped in the middle of the city. It has. It really does have that 9 to 5, 9 to 8, maybe, mm-hmm. life that then just disappears at night, which is fine with me since I live in that area, but that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> you, it, what I found interesting, you said the word bittersweet earlier, and that's a question I wanted to um, kick around. You also mentioned, and I'm paraphrasing, not to look like an old fart, which actually I look like a lot when I'm talking about development here. <clears throat> some may view those of us who resist some of the changes going on or who have some sense of nostalgia for Seattle of the past as being unrealistic, slow to accept inevitable change. What's your reaction to that view? Is there a way to be a little old fartish, but at the same time open to change? I mean, have you thought about that in yourself and, and what does it mean to accept change, but still bemoan the past? Well, personally, I'm a beneficiary of the new economy in the city. And I'm very thankful for that. I've had a successful career because of what's happened in this city in the last 20 years. The bitter sweetness comes in, in the fact that while the geography of this place hasn't changed, the scenic wonder and beauty of this place hasn't changed. The cultural attraction for the city has definitely shifted and where it was much more working class music centric rough and tumble, kind of a punk rock, do-it-yourself ethos, it has now become go out and drop $400 at a wine bar and, um, you know, go to a beautiful homeware store and, you know, buy $90 candles. Now, I like that stuff. <laughs> it's I'm not going to lie. Right. But I also want the ability to go see this great new band that, you know, is from – you know, Everett that is playing at the local dive bar, like three blocks from my apartment and walk there and, you know, see that, uh, have that experience too. I want to 
feel like the city is a working city and not just a showcase of technology and, you know, pristine, you know, overly designed scrub surfaces. You know, I think we start to see it now and just the, the dichotomy between all of this new construction and just the crazy amount of new housing that's being built in the city and the homelessness, Mm -hmm. you know, the dichotomy between, you know, people that are buying $600,000 condos, uh, one bedroom or studio condos, and then they're walking out in the morning and there's someone sleeping in their doorway. You know, that's where it starts to get bittersweet as you start to see the elements that kind of made the city a robust working class, interesting city at certain points are just being pushed out altogether. Mm-hmm. And there's not space for that anymore. The space is just for the new and just for the shiny and just for the expensive. Well, I can appreciate a lot of what goes on and I certainly benefit from it and I like to partake. You just slowly see that there's no space left for any other um, interpretation or lifestyle in the city. It's just you work for a tech company, you make a certain amount of money and you're able to afford it or you can't. And that just is, you know, over time, it's it's just going to, you know, become kind of intolerable, I think. Mm-hmm. And some people who are not uh, living in Seattle or have a conception of Seattle might find some cognitive dissonance because Seattle has a reputation for being one of the more uh, liberal democratic cities, uh, blue through and through. And though that is true, is our character shifting with the influx of, of new wealth, new investment, technology, boom, et cetera? I mean, if, if we truly are a progressive city, a liberal city, then the issues you're discussing should be front and center and addressed, whether it's the creation of ad hoc, organic spaces for culture, whether it's addressing the homelessness problem, whether it's addressing public health on the streets. You'd think, oh, Seattle's got it covered. After all, it's one of the most liberal progressive cities. But it doesn't seem to be happening. Is it the function of, of just influx of new wealth that is putting priority over construction and investment? Well, why do you think they're such a liberal city can have such such a problem. I'm not sure that Seattle is actually that liberal. In fact, I would argue that it was more liberal earlier in its history. And I mean, 30s, 40s, into the 50s. Um, and that as its age has gotten less liberal, it still definitely has a progressive sheen. And I think that has to do with kind of the education level here and sort of the uh, cultural accepted norms. But frankly, we have people here, and I think we have um, representatives that, you know, in any other city would probably be a Republican. Mm. You just can't be a successful elected official in the city and call yourself a Republican. You have to be a Democrat. And, you know, we have a very cozy civic leadership, very cozy with developers. Also, not strong civic leadership, civic leadership who kind of goes along to get along and, you know, is very like pro business Mm -hmm. overall. With a few exceptions, and I think, I think the um, progressive reputation of Seattle, you know, goes along with huge amount of historical nimbyism. Not my backyard. Mm. Well, great, you know, we want to have these progressive values, or we'll vote for certain things, but that better not be happening in my neighborhood. That better not be happening uh, where I want to build my new office tower. All of these sort of forces react and react against each other. And, um, you know, I, I think that um, for the foreseeable future, you know, we will be a reliably blue bubble. But if you, I think, talk to 
labor leaders in the city, if you talk to small business owners, if you talk to community organizers, those sorts of people would, I think, have a very different perspective about Seattle progressivism and what that actually means. It's again, it's a little bit of a pastiche kind of rubbed on the surface, mm. but there's you know some deep-rooted um, non-progressive values that permeate the city as well. And perhaps the city is a banking its reputation on a little inertia. It has been liberal and progressive in a in the strongest sense of the word in the past. And perhaps it's not as as it used to be, as you say, but from a third party perspective, from an external perspective, it's still viewed that way, even though those of us who live closer to here know that, that there are cracks mm-hmm. in that veneer. Let's shift a little bit. And when you think about Seattle. What are some of the experiences of Seattle today that you want to share with listeners? Let's go. Let's get a little positive. Other than the greatest hits, you know, Pike Place Market, the Space Needle, Seattle Center. What are those nooks and crannies they should visit that you want to leave them with and maybe give them an impression of either what Seattle used to be or what it is now or what it could be? My favorite things to do with visitors in Seattle is to get out on the water and there's lots of ways to do that. I think um, Lake Union, actually being out on Lake Union, if you can uh, you know, get one of those electric boats or find a friend with a boat and get out on that water, it's an amazing perspective shift in how you see Seattle because it really is from an inner city lake that used to be very industrial and there's still many remnants of that around. You see the oil refinery at Gasworks Park. You still see big ship retrofitting yards where they're retrofitting ships to go up to Alaska and do fishing. And then you see these beautiful houseboats and you get to kind of see these uh, perspective of the shifting of downtown, the South Lake Union neighborhood. And then you see Queen Anne and Capitol Hill. The houseboats themselves range from 1920s shacks on the water to multi-million dollar modernist floating homes. Yeah, it's beautiful. So I would say that that is, you know, particularly on a nice day, it's really, really good to uh, be out there. I also, um, you know, another way to get on the water is just a ferry. Go to Vashon Island, go to Bainbridge Island, go up to Muckleteo and go across to Woodby. That is a spectacular, unique Seattle perspective. I think uh, one of my favorite things that always makes me really love Seattle is coming from Bremerton on the ferry and you're standing at the front of the boat and you look and you see, you kind of round West Seattle and you see the skyline and it's always just, we live in a beautiful mm-hmm. space. Something that struck me when I moved here, and this is a completely theoretical quasi-scientific claim is the quality of the light here, especially around uh, morning and dusk. There's a certain purple orange veneer to it that that is undescribable the way it, it just glows during during sunset, dusk, and dawn. And I think my theory is that there's so much moisture saturated in the air that the quality of light gets refracted somehow and it's, it's absolutely wondrous to be around during those times. Yeah. On a clear day in the winter, like November, December, January, dusk is spectacular in Seattle. It's just every shade of blue, you know, and it's just, you kind of look at it and it's murky and it's dark, but it's also just spectacular. I think for Seattle experiences in city, um, you know, if you're really going to splurge and you're a foodie, I think going to Canlis is one of the things that you absolutely should do. That is a legacy restaurant here in Seattle. And that's been around forever. And I have taken people there on occasion. And it's just always this very unique, very special Northwest dining experience, not cheap. 
Um, and it juts out over like, you know, what is it, mid-century, modern, 1950s? It was built decor? in 1950, yeah. And it looks, um, they've done a great job of preserving it, but also re restoring it. And it has that, you know, kind of optimistic mid-century vibe about it that is just really special as well. Going to Ballard Avenue is also a really cool experience. End your evening, though, not at like a fancy sushi restaurant. End it at the Sunset Tavern or Hattie's Hat. Get a cheap beer and a shot and you know, sit in the back. The smoke shop next to the Sunset Tavern uh, is also still like kind of an authentic dive bar. And that is, um, you might even see some of the guys from the Deadliest Catch there, you know, so you can still get some of that fishing vibe. What about whole neighborhoods? If, if I open, you know, a timeout or a lonely planet, Seattle is Capitol Hill, Ballard, Fremont, Wallingford, University area, downtown, Pioneer Square. If you had to pick a neighborhood other than the usual ones that are in the tour guides, where would you point people to go visit? I'd say West Seattle. Definitely. I mean, it's interesting, you know, you you can uh, be right on the beach and then, you know, just up a few blocks and uh, there's really interesting uh, retail that's happening. It's big geographically, so it's hard to pinpoint that as just a neighborhood because it's kind of a multiple collection of street intersections. But if you have a day um, doing that, I would say also um, biking in Seattle. And one of my favorite bike rides is from my house on Capitol Hill down to the waterfront, you take the water taxi across to West Seattle and then right around Alki and then up to the top of the hill. Mm -hmm. It's a long day, but you really get a sense of geography and you get to just like stop at all these cool little restaurants along the way. And there's lots of great neighborhood um, vibe there. I'm a big proponent of Capitol Hill still. I think it's a great neighborhood, even despite all of the, the development. And there's pockets there that are really cool. And you can kind of get a sense of an older Seattle and also the newer Seattle too. Yeah, to give people a sense of what's happening in Capitol Hill, I'm going to describe in the most journalistic way possible. There's a lot of development there. There are a lot of uh, dive bars and older establishments. And I think some artists there have been plastering uh, telephone poles and electric utility cabinets with posters that, that bemoan the tech bros that have invaded the area as well as the woo girls that have invaded the we area. We came here to get away from you. <laughs> That's the That's big right. one. Yeah. And, then, and now they're back yeah. invading. So, you know, uh, there's that that movement as well, and it's out in the open. So there's those two cultures clashing and living together. You know, they filmed a season of The Real World uh, MTV there this summer. I had no idea that show was still on. The Real World Seattle the first time was kind of a disaster. So I'm surprised they came back. But, you know, there is that element. And it really um, is disheartening. My advice is to not go out on Capitol Hall on the weekends. Enjoy it on a Tuesday night. If you're there on Saturday at 1 a.m., it's it really is, you know, woo girls and bros and just, you know, shots and all yeah. sorts of shenanigans. But there are pockets of that neighborhood, too, when you get out of the immediate Pike Pine Corridor and you go north to um, Volunteer Park, which is spectacular. Mm -hmm. And you go over to 15th or 19th. Um, there's certain pockets of that neighborhood that are just, you know, really, yeah. really great. And then even um, coming down south on Capitol into the Central District now where there's been development, you know, on 12th and Jackson and moving into that connecting Capitol Hill with Central District and the ID, um, you know, it's really yeah. kind of shifting. 
Let's end with this. Could you see yourself living anywhere else other than Seattle? You you explored that a little earlier when we first talked about that. And if so, where and why? I have a few ideas on the top of my head. I think um, my top choice would be Mexico City to live. Uh, Bangkok is also on my list. I am fascinated with Lisbon. I'm not sure I could live there for a long time, but it's a beautiful city. And um, I would I would have said, six months ago, I would have said London. Now with Brexit, I'm not sure that I would want to live there. I'm constantly in my career looking for opportunities and projects with my company where I could be working elsewhere. Uh, so we'll see what the future holds. But the top of my list really right now is Mexico City. And I really think that at some point in the future, I'll, I'll be living there, if mm. not full-time, part-time. Well, I grew up in Mexico City, as as you know, so I'm going to have you back and maybe we'll chat about Mexico City in more detail. But I don't want to end necessarily with all the other towns you're thinking about because you started saying, you know, Seattle is still in your heart. Despite all of the the issues we discussed and, and all of the good and the and the bad, what is it about Seattle that has kept you here for so long? Well, you know, I think um, the geography of this place is – um, amazing. And you go to other places, great cities, wonderful cities. I just was in Austin or I've gone, you know, New York or, you know, London. And you have these really fun, fabulous experiences. But what's really always missing for me is the water in the mountains and just the visual representation of the geography that we are lucky enough to live in. And that for me is really special. And then I think having been here as long as I have, the other thing that's really just um, heartstrings for me is friends. You know, once you've been in a place for so long, you have established deep relationships, not just even personal relationships, but, you know, I think like, well, moving, if I move to Mexico City, my dry cleaner, Philip, isn't going to move with me. <laughs> what am I going to do? You know, uh, so you start, you know, those kind of habitual things that you've navigated in a, in a specific space place and space and you know how do you shift your life around that as well so yeah well i know you if you do that you'll be fine you'll create new habits and new routines that will just continue their life wherever you are chris will you come back and talk about mexico city yes i will thank you thank you for coming today and talking about seattle um, it's great to have you and i know you're being modest you do so much for this town um, when it comes to arts cultural and getting people together and even though I don't go to every single one of your events or have in, in the past, I really appreciate that about you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate being here. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave comments about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io, where our podcasts, videos, and written content live. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. We are now on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Take your pick or fire up your favorite podcatcher. Until the next time, this must be the place. <laughs>